I'm Jason Pack. I'm Arthur Snell. And this is Disorder, the podcast that tries really, really, really hard to provide a tiny, tiny, tiny semblance of order in this mad, 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 mad world. And this week, we actually have an easier chance to provide that tiny, tiny semblance of order because we're talking about water. And it turns out that water is one of those rare domains where countries are coordinating better than they used to. And that this could be an example of a domain in which lessons can be drawn about how better to work together as an international community. To help me discuss this topic, we're joined by one of my favorite podcasters and a very close friend of this podcast, Arthur Snell. He is a retired British diplomat who we've heard from in our previous climate change episode. The summer of 2023 was once again a record hot summer in the Northern Hemisphere. And when you get those hot days, what could be nicer than to jump into some cold water? Here in England, this green and pleasant land, we've got many lakes and rivers that people like to swim in. Or I should say they used to like to swim in them, because these days the rivers are full of shit. What am I talking about? I'm talking about pollution. And how did this happen? Well, over the years of neoliberalism, Our water companies are all private entities, and over the years, they've prioritized paying dividends to shareholders above their responsibilities to keep our water clean. They've managed to do this because they captured the regulator. No one was holding them to account on their basic responsibilities. Arthur, I can't let you have all the fun by talking about how the British have had their beautiful rivers all turned into rivers of shit, because I don't know what planet you're living on. We've all had our lives turned into rivers of shit over the last 20 or 30 years. Neoliberalism is this dominant international creed, and the insane privatizations have hit our waters in New Jersey and the Midwest, and even in wealthy and pristine, supposedly socialist Scandinavia, they've also struggled with the integrity of their water resources. Jason, one of the things that really came out for me on this subject is the fact that, of course, we all understand that water is completely fundamental to human life. And I wonder whether that explains to some extent the degree to which even quite disorderly countries still behave with a measure of responsibility around this subject, because it is so fundamental, it goes way beyond the sorts of things that people usually mess around with. Yeah, and we heard from Kurt Volker a few weeks ago in episode 15 about ways in which nuclear weapons and security in general causes even disorderly actors to take things seriously, and certainly for allied countries that have small disagreements to be willing to work together. That security is so fundamental that, you know, Hungary and Slovakia, who might not play nice with the U.S. and U.K., and Sweden on other issues, are willing to work together to prevent nuclear war. And you must be onto something here, that water is such a fundamental human need and fundamental human right that people are not willing to normally piss and shit in the water that they then have to drink. But I don't want to overdo that because there are the same coordination complexities where one country builds a dam upstream and they try to gazump the country downstream and steal their water. And And that's why this is such an interesting domain for us orderers here to try to look at. What can we learn from how coordination does work well in the domain of water and what is not working and needs to be improved? To better help us do that, we're going to turn to a real expert. 
So we're joined today by Professor Naho Miramachi, and she's a specialist on the politics and governance of the environment, particularly water and energy. And her research brings together thinking about the political economy of international transboundary river basins. And just so everyone understands, that's where the headwaters of a large river system cross various countries. And so it's not simple for one country to make the decision about whose water that actually belongs to. Probably the biggest and most important example of this is the River Nile. Of course, it has its headwaters in Ethiopia, it passes through Sudan, and comes out into the sea in Egypt. All of those are huge countries, countries with a lot of complex needs, and the River Nile is central to the economies of all of those countries. Water runs through so many issues that we are facing today. So quite obviously, climate change is the one that comes to many people's mind, I'm sure. But I've also learned that water really is also about food, because 70 to 90% of all water goes into food production. Also, one of the most worrying things that I've been facing the last couple of weeks, having talked to my colleagues, is the amount of pollution that we have in our water. So one in three person has microplastics in their bloodstream right now. And that's pretty shocking. And a lot of microplastics are in our rivers, in our oceans. There's a lot of old mines. I'm based in the UK and there are a lot of old mines that are now being disused. So they're just kind of sitting there. But at the same time, there's like a 20, 30 year legacy of pollution coming from these mines. So we're seeing lots of metal contamination, which undoubtedly have effects. You know, we know that these metal contamination leads to things like cancer, leads to things like skin diseases. So it runs through a lot of things, and it's right now running in your blood. Yeah, sickening to think about, but obviously part of the reason those metal particles are going to be in the water stream is that big corporations have not taken the effort to clean up their work sites and their mining, and probably government hasn't had the right regulations to incentivize that behavior, or maybe it's government's responsibility to have better water filtration. So... Could you tell us how do multinational firms make money out of water? So a lot of the times, the way that these global corporations or big companies, they, for example, if they're in the food and beverage sector, they are literally using land and water that's running through the land to make their crops. And then that gets turned into a beer, for example, or something into like flour that becomes our pizzas and things like that. But then there are mining companies that provide really important mining things for our clean energy technologies. And so there's a long chain of companies that are invested in the whole process of using water. And I think that's also connecting to us. So you mentioned governments having the responsibility to better regulate, certainly, but also consumers demanded. We also are a part of this whole sphere of using water and demanding water. And I think we can also face the mirror towards us and say what kind of consumer behavior is also driving a lot of these unsustainable practices. I wanted to ask, actually, is an aspect of this Is it regulatory capture? Because in the UK, it's basically become a sort of media storm, this idea that all of our rivers are flowing with, for want of a better word, flowing with shit. And it feels as if the regulator is unable to regulate these very large firms that run the water in the UK context. And perhaps that's because the regulator itself is somehow captured by that industry. 
I think the problem is that there's a disconnect between the government, the regulator, the private companies. And also, remember, the private companies are foreign invested companies. So I think that's where a lot of the malfunctions emerge. And I would assert that the malfunctions emerge because water is a collective good. And hence, what we've seen in the UK for non-UK listeners is a private company sells water at X amount, makes a profit, but they're not redoing the pipes and water is being leaking or they're exhausting the system. Then they go bankrupt. People have made money. And when they go bankrupt, the state has to provide water because it's Britain. They're not going to not provide water to the people. And the investors in that company have made off with their profit. Am I missing something? Well, I think fundamentally, water is a human right. And that has to be crystal clear to the private companies, to the government, to the consumers, that there's an obligation for states to provide clean water, safe water to their citizens. And the citizens also have the right to call for recourse when that human right hasn't been upheld. Sadly, in many parts of the world, the human right to water and sanitation hasn't been recognized or it's not necessarily practiced in a way that provides protection to all people. It might be protecting to the rich people who can pay their bills, but not necessarily to people who are off the system, off the water system. And is that right really enshrined in international law, or it's just a a good thing to think about? It's been debated and accepted by the UN, so uh, many governments look up to it. Uh, It's part of the Sustainable Development Goals 6, so we do have water as a clear political mandate. But the proof is always in the pudding with implementation. You can have beautiful prose. You can even enshrine the human right to water in your constitution. But how you actually practice it is another matter. And, and I think that's where a lot of the challenges are. Could you tell us about the treaties that govern how water should be shared between states and regions? Do these treaties work? And are they adequately enforced? Perhaps you could go into a bit more detail there. Yeah, so right now, for example, we rely on the UN Water Courses Convention to say how countries should cooperate. If they're going to build a dam, they should let their downstream states know there should be equitable and reasonable use. But all of these things, like what's equitable, depends on the context, depends on the country. And so the onus is on states to discuss and negotiate and work that out. What's equitable between U.S. and Mexico might not necessarily be equitable between the Nile states. Typically, in other areas of sort of the interest that certainly, you know, Jason and I have looked at in this podcast in the past, you have this sort of ordering powers and disordering powers. And, you know, there are countries that seek to drive global cooperation on certain issues and other countries that appear to have an interest in undermining cooperation. Do you see that in the context of water diplomacy? So the good example would be to look at the Nile. The Nile has been heavily contested, shared by 11 countries, and Ethiopia's building of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam has been highly contested. Downstream Egypt has been very upset over the way in which Ethiopia has gone ahead and filled their dams and produced electricity. And so in many ways, you could argue that there is disorder there. And then you also have countries like the U.S. that have tried to intervene. And you could ask, why on earth would 
the U.S. want to intervene in a place like this because it's probably not for water. So there are other motivations for the U.S. to be involved. The African Union has also mediated. And again, you can say, why would the African Union want to be involved? It's because they want to see some sort of regional security in this part of the world. And water, as a result, sort of underpins other functions of international relations, other functions of trade, other functions of foreign diplomacy. And so the way I see it is that water issues get folded into other aspects of foreign policy. And I think that's where perhaps you see countries who are more active in trying to seek cooperative agreements and others who may be considered less enthusiastic in trying to develop some sort of multilateralism There is this UN Water Courses Convention that has been signed by many states, but there have been countries that have not been at all enthusiastic about signing up. And I think this gives you a flavor of how some countries see water in and of itself a political agenda that they want to face on deal with, or they want to deal with water through other means. I'm glad you brought up the Nile example because it's, you know, obviously I think the world's greatest river and, of course, It's a classic transboundary river basin, which is an area of work for you. So could you say a bit about these transboundary rivers, which, of course, are hugely significant almost on every continent, and and the scale and significance of those in global water politics and water diplomacy? Yeah, so there are many of these transboundary rivers in our world. We have about 286 of them, and 158 countries have at least one transboundary river basin in their territory. That's the majority of countries that we have on this world. 40% of our global population relies on these basins. So in Southeast Asia, we have the Mekong River that's shared by China, Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And it's a very rich ecosystem. A lot of special species, a lot of unique species are there important for people's livelihoods. The fish are extremely important. But what we're seeing is increasingly the river is being chopped up by having a series of dams throughout the whole of the river. That means fish can't migrate to their spawning grounds. And that would have knock-on effects to how people eat, not to mention how people are going to travel up and down, navigate up and down the river. There's been long-standing tension between upstream states and downstream states on what to do. The situation, though, is all of the countries want to develop the river. This is an area that has a lot of poverty, a lot of impetus for economic development. So the river is seen as a valuable source of economic development. But this is coming at the cost of people's livelihoods, people's health, ecosystem health, as I say. And being such a big river, this will have large-scale impacts in the future. As an aspect of that, the Nile example, the Mekong example you've just described, someone listening to this would say, well, this eventually leads to conflict. And I know that there's a big debate around this, so I guess it's time to ask the question, have there been water wars? Will there be water wars? Some people say these wars have already taken place. What's your response to that debate? I would say there has been no acute military war over water. States haven't gone to fight over water, but certainly there have been killings between farmers over water. 
And I think there's been a lot of harm that has been caused as a result of pollution and poor health, for example. So even though states may not be in acute conflict vis-a-vis -vis each other, infrastructure can be targeted when there's conflict, for example. So dams can be target, like the Mosul Dam. But I think in the future, what we'll see is that these kind of conflicts will be much more intense when there are uncertainties around how much water there's going to be. I think it's less likely to be between states because going to war over water is very costly. But I think there will be a lot of conflicts between communities. There's already a lot of conflict between local communities and businesses over how water is being used. So I think that kind of conflict will be quite an important problem that would need solving. Turning that concept slightly on its head, in a world where water scarcity may be a bigger problem and where the, effectively the value of this commodity must go up, the water as a weapon of war, so denying access to water. And of course, certainly in history, whether it's World War II history or we could think about sort of Ukraine, Crimea, Russia, you know, there, there seem to be plenty of contexts where that has happened. So is that something that you can foresee becoming much more widespread? Well, I think infrastructure is always a bit of a target. And I think whether that's water-related infrastructure or energy-related infrastructure, I, I think that will end up being featured in many of these strategic decisions. But to give you another example, in South Asia, we have the Himalayas, which have many areas of glaciers. And they provide important rivers to large parts of the population. And what we're seeing here is a retaliation of governments trying to secure the headlands, the headwaters of these rivers. So China has announced that they will build a hydropower dam. And then a few weeks later, you have India declaring that they have signed off on a new plan for a project. And so I think what you'll be seeing is some sort of war of words or some form of diplomatic contention over how rivers are used, whether that actually pans out into actual infrastructure is to be seen. A lot of the times, these large-scale infrastructure takes many years to build, 10 years even more. And by that time, with climate change, the situation might have changed so much that actually the dam might not be in a very good position to be built because there might be less water, for example. So I think that these are the kinds of issues that we'll probably be seeing and require further scrutiny in the sense that what is being said might not necessarily turn out to be the actual location of the dam itself. It feels to me that the kind of burning question is the difference between sort of water stress and perhaps that drives conflict at a low level and what might be water crisis. And, and we see certain countries... For example, you know, the Sahel region, which appears to be experiencing and, and is going to face sort of extreme water stress. And those are countries that are falling into really serious conflict. Is that coincidence? I mean, there could be political reasons for conflict. It could be all kinds of other factors. Or is this climate change phenomenon driving an intensification of that sort of water conflict challenge? Well, first of all, I think there's a strong problem of governance failure. 
even without climate change, there is a problem of governance failure. There's a lot of governments that don't have the right legislation in place. There's a lot of missing accountability. There's a lot of poor business practice. And then you throw in issues of climate change, which makes it worse. Because what climate change forces us as a society to do is to be more flexible. So when an unexpected event, water-related event happens, you need to respond very quickly. And if you have poor governance to begin with, it's going to be much more difficult to do that. Let's try to order the disorder together, Nahu. What are the best options for moving forward? I'm not an expert in this domain in even the slightest, but my inclination is that you can't have a system where people can make money by consuming too much now without paying a price for the future. So what are the ways to put costs on overusage now? So one of the most fundamental things I would say is to have data sharing and data transparency. If you don't know how much your upstream neighbor is using, then that's a non-starter. So improved data transparency between countries, I think, is quite important. It's also the same between citizens and their governments as well. Transparency in how water is being used, what kind of investments are being made, what kind of enforcement is being done, what kind of penalties are being missed if there's an instance of pollution, for example, that would help provide a more robust response. As you may know, I've lived in Libya And in Libya, they have the world's largest man-made river called, very surprisingly, the Great Man-Made River. It's predicated on an extremely wasteful and unsustainable concept. They use this water to do irrigation to try to do, let's make the desert bloom, let's have some Libyan tomatoes. Well, it makes no sense to grow a tomato in Libya because it takes nine times as much water as it does to grow the same tomato in Italy so that by the time you pay for the Libyan tomato, it costs 10, 20, 30 times more than to import a better and tastier tomato from southern Italy, which is just two minutes away. And having experienced that, you realize if you have the wrong ideology, you're going to misuse your water. So what's the right ideology for us to have about water? The right ideology is to be with the water. I would say that people need to connect more with the river, connect more with their coasts. And that way you have a better understanding of how much we rely on it and also how we are part of the solution. I would be surprised. Um, Not many people really know how much water they use during the day. So I've been in a situation where I've had to clean my body using a bucket um, when I've been doing field work. Of course. And as a result, I now know. But it's only if you are in a circumstance like that when you realize how much water you use on a daily basis. If you're in a convenient environment where you can just turn on the tap, flush the loo, you can never really figure out how much water you're using. And so... Being more intimate with what we use, I think, is a really important part. Okay, that's a very nuanced answer, and and of course I I agree with that. I was trying to get to a more magic bullety, ordering the disorder kind of answer. How about I throw one out and you tell me as an expert if I'm completely wrong, because I, I may well be. We create an entity, call it a NATO for Water, which is a global institution which can coordinate not only nation states sharing of water, 
but intergenerational sharing. You use a market-like mechanism, because that's what I'm always talking about on this program. Markets actually work, whereby countries participate in a market, and if you use it, you pay for it. And therefore, we can have sharing. You may call this a tax burden, whereby taxes are placed on people who consume too much. And this can create sustainability because then there are market-based incentives for more efficient consumption. Are you putting yourself up for a job, Jason? This is a podcasting gig, <laughs> not who isn't that lucrative. If you are willing to hire me to run the NATO for water, you know, I'd consider it. Yeah, I know. We live in a gig economy, and that's the problems with capitalism, I would say. But going back to your question, we have struggled, countries have struggled, the international society has really struggled to come up with an organization around the environment like this. We've just had the first water conference by the UN since 30 years ago, and I think that already gives you an indication of how important governments have considered water to be, i.e. not very important. Which is shocking, right? Because it's like, dudes, you can't live without it. Yeah, yeah. And so that kind of continued dialogue is quite important. And so I think about the way in which there could be more areas for communication and dialogue and then being able to deliberate, to think about a deliberative democracy in which we can think about and discuss different kinds of solutions. After the break, we'll discuss if the lessons Naho taught us about water could be used in other areas of disorder. Arthur, Nahu raised so many interesting points. The word that has been resonating in my ears since it came up is regulatory capture. And when people on the right of the libertarian spectrum say, we can make a given thing more efficient, more effective by privatizing it, I've always wondered, how do we regulate the newly privatized thing? And it turns out whether it's train companies or water or defense contractors, what I've seen is that when you privatize the thing, you're not then able usually to regulate it because the one or two players who operate in the space capture the regulator. So what do we do to actually constrain these privatized entities? It's a great question. And before I answer it, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the nature of the privatized water industry in Britain, because the numbers are so straightforward. The privatized water companies over the roughly 25 years of their private status have paid out £57 billion in dividends. And at the same time, the government is saying that they're £25 billion worth of infrastructure that they should have spent, which they haven't. And that is directly led to the pollution crisis that we're having. So it's such an obvious challenge there. But I haven't answered your question. Let me try to answer that. No, but in a way you did, because there's a question of incentive structure here. Yeah. I think that when you have consensus government, which we don't have in the US anymore, that's an entity which can think to the future because the same people who are making decisions now are going to be facing consequences from their voters or from living in the society later. But what you're talking about is the privatized entity, the water company, is able to reap profits now 
not put the money in for the infrastructure and then exit, either by declaring an early bankruptcy or by essentially not dealing with the environmental externalities that they did have enough money to do. And therefore, it undercuts the whole logic of that privatization will create better incentive structures than the public sector. Definitely. And of course, there are, you know, there's a logical fallacy, arguably, in a privatized water company The the consumer doesn't have a row of taps and they pick the one, you know, where they find the water is better and the service is better and, you know, all that. So in a way, it seems to me it's a classic case of privatization for an ideological purpose led by a certain government rather than for an underlying value that it gives to society. But I think this point about regulators is important. Regulators need to be powerful. They need not just to have high-profile and empowered leaders, but they need to be prepared to litigate where necessary and to take strong enforcement action. And I think, particularly in Britain, there's very much a culture of this kind of consensual elite that works together, and we don't like to confront, we don't like to have crises of this sort. And I think in some cases, and particularly in this sort of context, it has allowed things to get much worse than they would otherwise have been. So I think there are two layers here that might be worthwhile unpicking in the water dimension and then expanding out. The one is the issue of incentive structures of privatization. I'm of the belief that things that are utilities or public goods never work when privatized. Just look at your internet. If you don't have good service to your area, you know, you can't get the upload speeds that we need to create an excellent podcast and they have no incentive to give it to you. But that's a little different than the question of regulation when there truly is no competition. Water and train service is the great example here. Yeah. What's it going to take? Does it require voters to vote to have a more powerful regulator that can put these white crawler criminals behind bars that can pull back dividends or profits or bonuses that have been paid out? So does it require legal reform? What do you think is needed? Well, I think one of the challenges is that these independent regulators, so in Britain we have Offwatt, which exists to regulate water, they are remote organizations that average voters have no say over and no real understanding of. And voters, of course, would never vote to live with polluted water supplies, with expensive water, with unreliable water, but that's rarely on the ballot card. So one of the ways that we, I think we need to change this is that actually, whilst you need your regulators to be independent, they have to be much more accountable. And I think an aspect of this is simply about giving them leaders that themselves have an incentive to perform highly. By that, I mean leaders who have ambitions, leaders who want to become national political figures or to continue their careers in that way. I think it has to do with really creating governmental bodies that can cut through the bull of capitalism. Definitely. Taking the money back, inspecting the site, laying down fines. The way that it's done in America through our FCPA, there is a tremendous dynamism to how corruption is prosecuted. And then it lays down a legal precedent which changes the whole industry. We don't have that about privatized utilities like water or broadband. Do you know what I mean? Imagine getting in there and being like, aha, you've denied this whole area their high speeds broadband, 1.3 billion pounds that you have to pay for the education of that minority community. Like that would be amazing. And I think would really cause a huge change in behavior on behalf of the companies. Now who talked about a world where there might be water wars, but that there haven't been them yet. 
So this made me ask a question. Are we not having major interstate conflict because we're not at a place of profound enough scarcity? I think that's a huge question. And I think particularly when you look at Asia and you look at the situation in India, where the population, of course, continues to grow fairly rapidly. It's now, of course, the largest population in the world. The productivity of Indian agriculture is not keeping up with population growth. Climate change is making our agriculture less productive. And the question of the headwaters of the great rivers that feed India are all in Tibet, which, of course, is these days part of China. That is a very knotty and complex issue. And were there to be a future conflict between India and China, and of course, India and China have fought wars in the 20th century, and, and there are small explosions of conflict between those countries relatively frequently. Were there to be a future conflict, it's impossible to exclude water being one of the main issues at stake there. How do we get the global coordination to prevent that? We heard with Kurt Volker that states coordinate quite well when it comes to avoiding a nuclear holocaust. And in his mind, the reason is quite simple. It's because it is of existential importance. And therefore, even if I'm a neo-populist in Hungary, you're like, eh, I don't want to get nuked by the Russians. So you'll coordinate with your NATO allies. What are we going to need to do to prevent water from getting to the point where it is truly existential? And then how, as it is getting to that point of existential scarcity, can we create these coordination mechanisms? And it seems to me that this is intimately linked in with the wider climate crisis issue. As the globe heats, we end up with more rainfall, but it is often the wrong rainfall in the wrong places. And Arthur, it is coming I'm as I'm always a- getting this wrong rainfall. Whenever I'm inside doing a podcast, it's sunny and nice out. <laughs> I got to go to Chatham House tomorrow. You'll get the wrong you know, rainfall. Yeah. And it's going to be the wrong it rainfall. Is. because I'm going to be on my bike and it's going to be so much wrong rainfall. While I'm caught in traffic and getting drenched in my suit. Yeah. So how can we have more of the right rainfall? You can fix that for me. You know everything. (laughs) Sadly, I think that one is beyond me entirely. One of the conundrums of the climate crisis is that some places will get wetter, but they will experience water scarcity nevertheless. We may need whole new systems of management of water, which we don't have at the moment. And part of that is technological, but part of it must be to do with better global coordination. And I think, I mean, of course... Ordering the disorder is always about collective action solutions to these collective action problems. And I think better coordination is going to be a key element of that. The one thing I say, which which gives me a little bit of cause for optimism, is that because water is so fundamental, so existential, I think even quite disordering states are a bit reluctant to play havoc with it. It's almost like a kind of environmental equivalent of a nuclear deterrent. It's the thing that no one one ever wants to use. I love it. I believe in mad theory, which is mutually assured destruction theory. And there's no reason that there isn't mad theory for water. And this goes right back to Kurt Volker's point that I was referencing, which is that he pointed out that not enough people perceive kleptocracy or AI or online misinformation or even climate change as existential. Yeah. They understand that nuclear apocalypse is existential, and they may begin to understand, uh uh-oh, not having enough clean water or not having enough to drink, it's game over. One, we're going to get voted out of office. There's going to be a coup against us if no one has any water to drink. Or we drink the same water as 
everyone else. The only thing that pushes against that is if you look at a place like Lebanon, this is a country that had been reasonably, I would say, middle income with 1% who is very, very elite. Mm. You could drink the water there and now you can't. And everyone has to have tons of bottled water and they don't have enough bottled water and real problems in, in the amount of bottled water that is needed to run the economy. You can't even wash your vegetables with the water now because they really have the river of shit problem because there is no Lebanese central government. And so they allowed it to happen. Is that worrying or is that not a great example because the Lebanese state doesn't exist? It's essentially a non-state. And even in a country that's corrupt but functional like Jordan, this wouldn't have happened. Well, I think one of the challenges is the cost of infrastructure is huge. Lebanon ran as a kleptocracy for years. The state didn't invest in basic infrastructure. And now they've reached a point where they can't get credits. It's impossible for them to sort of claw back. You mentioned Jordan. Now, Jordan is functional, but its economy is very weak. Jordan probably doesn't have the capacity if there were to be a crisis. I was speaking recently to somebody who works in Guatemala. Now, Guatemala is facing a real crisis of aridification. So there are areas of the country that used to be productive arable areas that are becoming very unproductive, and that is driving migration, including migration to the US southern border, which in itself, as you know better than I do, drives all kinds of other disorder effects. So this is a good example of how, in a relatively small country, the failure of certain infrastructure around water, around the agricultural livelihoods for certain people, is driving something which could drive very dangerous kind of neo-populist politics in the United States. Arthur, it's like you've been listening to my podcast. Uh, Who would know? You're saying all these things that I say, (laughs) although you say potato, I say patata. Right. Because you say aridification and I say desertification. I see the desertification in places like Guatemala really tapping into the appeal of neo-populism leading into the migrants and then the crazy anti-migrant policies, which seems to have captured a lot of the democratic global north. So it's all connected and it's all happening everywhere at once. And this gets to Nahu's kind of parting shot about deliberative global international democracy. A lot of buzzwords all in a row must be impressive. Should we do it? Should we have the deliberative global international democracy? I think we should, but I don't know how to get there. I think it's just very complicated. I want to have some kind of global institutions, but I don't know if they will be democratic at the globally deliberative level. Do you know what I mean? That gets at the democratic deficit and sovereignty problem at that level. I think that states may need to delegate their sovereignty upwards. But that is a topic for another day, is it not? It is indeed. We could start talking about the UN General Assembly, but I don't think that's an answer. That's just a description of the problem. (laughs) So that brings us to the end of this week's show. Remember, you can tap follow right now so you not only won't miss our regularly scheduled episodes, but sometimes we have bonus episodes when big things like desertification in Guatemala or even by-elections in mid-Bedfordshire. I mean, I'm talking big things. You don't want to miss it when we discuss those kind of topics. And you can find us on social media by searching Disorder Show, and you can read more about today's topic by checking out the show notes. Our producer is the wonderful George McDonough, and our executive producer is the highly talented Neil Fern. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an orderly week. Mm-hmm.